This is Dennis Money. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our guest today on Spirit Matters Talk is Marianne Williamson. She is a world-renowned author and speaker, having had a number of books on the New York Times bestseller list. Her latest book, <laughs> Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. And I have read the book. I, I, I really, uh, Marianne, this is um, a very important book. Uh, dealing with suffering as directly as you have uh, an extremely important message at this time. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, excited to share my experiences with the book with our listeners today. And uh, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on. Oh, thank you so much um, for having me. And I'm so glad that you like the book, Dennis, and that you think it uh, has something valuable to say. I'm, I'm very grateful to hear you say that. It is an important book, and um, so uh, and thanks for coming back. You're our first repeat guest on Spirit Matters. Oh, well, that's an honor. Thank you. <laughs> um, maybe you can we, we can begin by asking you, with all your experience and all the work you've been doing in the world for so many years, what prompted this book at this time in particular? Well, I think the only chance that any author, I think really any artist has or any creative person doing anything meaningful in the world, of touching other people at a deep level, is if you are expressing yourself from that which is a deep feeling and impulse inside yourself. So, first of all, it was um, some experiences that I had gone through and my feelings about <clears throat> how to navigate my way through them from a spiritual perspective. But that was juxtaposed um, and combined with a very deep concern about what I see happening in the culture today, which is the opposite of an organic, holistic, um, spiritual um, perspective on navigating the waters of deep sadness. Um, I've lived a bit, and I've also worked a lot with people in life dealing with life-challenging illnesses and uh, other catastrophic situations in their lives. That's part of my work. So I have seen suffering up close and personal, not only in my own life, but in the lives of many, many people. What has happened over the last few years, though, it's a huge cultural phenomenon that came upon us rather quickly. It's like you turned your, your head and you look back and it's like, well, what? And that is this behemoth of uh, pharmaceutical, uh, particularly antidepressant use, uh, to deal with what that industry has appropriated uh, as depression. Now, there is a, a spectrum of normal human suffering that is not a mental illness. Um, suffering over the loss, the death of a loved one, a bitter divorce, financial ruin. These, these things are, are deeply painful, but they are not mental illnesses. And yet what is happening in far too many cases, and I find it as a woman, perhaps I feel this even most strongly, particularly in the lives of young people, for reasons I'll mention in a moment, the idea that all deep sadness is a mental disorder. You know, we, we slap labels mm -hmm. like anxiety disorder. We slap labels like depressive disorder. This is very twisted. First of all, it, it's not a disorder. You know, the fact that you're grieving a loved one is not a disorder. Secondly, our entire civilization is an anxiety disorder because the principles on which we are predicated at this point are so... Uh, contrary to who we are deeply, fundamentally, spiritually as people. And then thirdly, and this is why I think 
<clears throat> I wanted to do what I could to pretty much scream this message from the mountaintop, is that the FDA itself warns that in people 25 years old and younger, antidepressant use actually increases rather than decreases suicidal ideation. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't hear people talking about that. Right. Rather, what you hear <clears throat> is that from friends, from, from, from doctors who are not psychiatrists and not psychotherapists, just from everywhere in the culture, people saying, if you were going through a really rough time, do you think you need to, should you be taking something? Should mm -hmm. you be taking medication? Almost in these holy terms, like we, we've got this reverence towards them all of a sudden. It, it's the only, I mean, I thought we had outgrown uh, false respect uh, for, and, and I'm not saying I don't have uh, meaningful or that we shouldn't have meaningful respect for uh, Western medicine. I do. I mean, bio biomedical uh, research and so forth ab ab absolutely saves lives. And I think psychotherapeutic um, <clears throat> medication in cases like bipolar, schizophrenia, obviously there are cases where this saves lives. But when people today talk about depression as though it is a specific disease and that it is different than major sadness, this story needs to be challenged. When people say, oh, there's a change in blood chemistry, in brain chemistry, well, I'm sorry, stop right there. First of all, I've known hardly anyone who was diagnosed with depression whose doctor had actually done a brain chemistry test. Number two, meditation changes your brain chemistry too. It changes your neuro circuitry, your neurotransmitters. Number three, there is no blood test for depression. It's not like leukemia or diabetes. The, the diagnosis of, of clinical depression is a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And any of us, mm -hmm. if we look at that questionnaire, would, would say, I've had some of, those, um, some of those symptoms at some point. And then the final clincher for me that made me go, we must not shut up about this, is that in the United States, and this is comparing this specifically to, let's say, Europe, there is, to me, this is so ugly, not only are people, particularly young people, put on these antidepressants for situations that are simply part of the normal spectrum of human suffering, but then told in far too many cases, quote, unquote, you should expect to be on these for the rest of your life. Right, mm -hmm. right. And, I, and I'm sorry, but when you consider the billions and billions of dollars being made um, from this new story that has been created, um, um, you know, helpful in some cases at best and sinisterly propagandistic at worst. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to shut up. Right. Uh, Marianne, the, re the reason I, I was so taken <coughs> by the book and why I feel it's so important is because uh, th this point you're making now about the pharmaceuticals coming in to uh, determine exactly how we should feel, and, and it starts in school. Oh, this kid's a, a little bit of a behavior disorder. This kid has a lot of energy <coughs> in class. Let's then put them on medication. <clears throat> so it starts there as you get older. Okay, part of the human experience is to is to experience some grief, some depression. Uh, and uh, do we? You mentioned in the book that our, our we have a society that has become obsessed with feeling good all the time. And what if there was one pill you could take and? and uh, uh, there would never be any depression, anxiety, any of those things. Would you still be living a human life? And I, I, I think that this is something that really must give us pause that we have to reflect on. Uh, w how do we differentiate between, you know, 
taking away pain or 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 or, uh, or suffering when it's to a certain degree, but at the same time to be able to process that. And you mentioned in the book sometimes people go through suffering, and, and it's an initiation into a higher level of life. It's the lessons and whatnot they learn from that. Processing it is the only way to take away the pain. You know, when you suppress a symptom, you're not taking away the symptom. Mm -hmm. You're just suppressing it, and it will come back around to bite you. So, uh, the first of all, I challenge the notion that, that these pharmaceuticals do, quote-unquote, take away the pain in any kind of fundamental level. And the fact that they might flatline your emotions for a while, um, this desensitizes to, to you to your own pain, which sets you up in a myriad of ways for more pain. Secondly, the book is not just saying what we shouldn't necessarily do. It's saying what we should do, which is, as you were saying, the processing of the pain. A lot of the psychotherapeutic model, one of the things I talk about in the book, as you know, Dennis, is that hundreds of years ago, people looked to religion for mm -hmm. inspiration and comfort. And for all kinds of reasons, institutionalized, organized religion has, in, in, in a vast way, abdicated its moral authority and responsibility in this area. They gave it over to, for the most part. They abdicated it. It was taken on by the psychotherapeutic profession. The psychotherapeutic profession, however, when it differentiates, or, or not just differentiates, when it leaves the spirit, the dimension of spirit out of, of mental uh, analysis also does not go deep enough to provide genuine comfort or inspiration. And so it's basically handed the baton now to the pharmacological um, mm -hmm. industry whose basic, uh, basic uh, answer is to just suppress or numb the pain. Spiritual processing, and, and what I talk about in the, in the book is that pain didn't just start. Human catastrophe didn't just start. Human heartbreak didn't just start. You know, and and we in our arrogance, the modern you know modernity is is we we're so the modern mind is so arrogant to think that we have come up with better ways than nature, really better ways than God to handle things. When the truth of the matter is, all the great religious systems and the three that I focus on in the book are Buddha and Moses and Jesus, all three foundational stories, uh, like all the great religious stories, deal specifically with the issue of human suffering. That was Buddha's whole teaching, that life is suffering. Uh, Moses, the story of Exodus, begins with the suffering of the Israelites as slaves, the suffering of the Israelites in, as they wandered through the desert. And of course, the story of Jesus, the foundational myth begins with his suffering on the cross. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 they, they point to the suffering, and then they point to what happens when we make that journey um, into God's, God's final word. And God's final word is, is not Buddha's realization of suffering, but Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. God's final say is not the suffering of the Israelites, but their deliverance to the promised land. God's final word is not the suffering of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So when we move deeply, deeply within our hearts and minds into the vortex into the energy of the deep transformative power of those messages. And that's what spiritual, the great religious teachings are, are codes. They're mystical codes. They're transmissions that literally inform us. So when we use principles like forgiveness and, and, and compassion and mercy and atonement, 
not only so that we can forgive others, but so that we can forgive ourselves and focus on the present, letting go of the future, letting go of the grasping. You know, Buddha, for instance, said in his Four Noble Truths, not only is life suffering, but that all the gifts of this world, all the things of this world, can provide temporary happiness at best. Well, our entire society, entire consumer society is based on the notion that if you get this or get that or make this happen or make that happen, you will be happy, which means that everything that our society tells us is the journey to happiness is actually a set up for despair. So unless you go deep enough into recognizing the way we need to dismantle an entire thought system that is not just applicable to the individual, but which is the cultural insanity, then none of us will be able to escape our individual pain on any kind of fundamental basis. Marianne, you, we've talked about uh, the pharmaceutical industry's uh, culpability in this uh, phenomenon and the uh, psychiatric community, <clears throat> the religious community's abdication, the organized religion. Do you think there's any responsibility to be borne also by certain elements in the sort of a uh, spiritual community where um, you see very often little attempts at shortcuts to happiness and, and a kind of um, um, overlay of don't worry, be happy kind of. No, you know. well, all you, listen, how can you compare the fact that sometimes there's a little bit of bullshit compared <laughs> uh, to a situation where people die? No, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sorry. Don't, don't put that one on us, you know. At most, you know, sometimes people, you like roll your eyes because that's the silliest thing I ever heard. That's very different. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, I'd like to go back to a, something that, that Dennis, you said a few minutes ago, which is what's happening even among children. I mean, uh, I was reading about some southern state, I can't remember what, where they are actually giving pharmaceuticals to children who are quote-unquote at risk. I mean, what the hell? Mm-hmm. At risk for being ADD? Mm-hmm. I mean, all this ADD stuff. Why do you not see these ADD diagnoses in countries like France? Yeah. You know, and also what you, what you were saying. I mean, little boys, the testosterone of the ages is running through their systems. And when you put them in, a, in, a, in the American model of education where they have to sit all day, right. that, that when they're, you know, that's not what they, that's not how nature created them. And then we say, and there's a lot of that going on here, yeah, beginning yeah. with the children, where the canary in the mine, instead of realizing that the pain of the canary and even the death of the canary means that there's something toxic in the mine, the society is saying, no, there's something wrong with the canary. Right. I, I think if I had gone to school uh, and was the way I was when I was a kid now, uh, they might have drugged me. I mean, I didn't walk out of school. <laughs> I used to explode out of school. Uh, because yeah. I, I know would, that's there was right. no movement all day. Uh, Marianne, and you know the, what? You go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, I'm sure you've seen Michael Moore's uh, movie, Where to Invade Next. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I did, yeah. I, I love when, he, when they talked about Finland and how they're, mm-hmm. they're top in education, mm-hmm. and yet they, the kids have no homework because they know that right. the kids have to have a life. Right. And yet they, they, it was, I, there was so much in that movie like that. But also in terms of what you just said, not only that we would have been drugged, but equally as, as dangerous in certain cases, you and I would have been labeled. That's right. With these kids come out of high school with so many, um, initial, so many letters after their name, but they're not letters like MA, BA, PhD. Mm-hmm. They're letters like this disorder and that disorder. And 
I, I can't imagine exactly what you said, Dennis, when you look at where you've come in your life, where I've come in mine, mm-hmm. this, it just wouldn't have happened because I, my self-perception, I would have seen myself as damaged goods. This is particularly significant for the millennials because the 20s are hard. So when I see these young people slapped with all these labels and, and given all these, 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 these pharmaceuticals, when what they're going through is called the 20s. It's hard. You're figuring out who you are. You're not a child anymore. You're an adult, but you don't know what that means, and you don't know your place, particularly mm-hmm. in a society like this that doesn't really give you a deep, you know, a, a deep sense of your place. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, need to, we need to be speaking about you know, this. Marianne, one other thing I, I wanted to uh, ask you about was that I, in, in your book, Tears to Triumph, uh, you were very uh, honest. You, you bared your soul. And one of the things you brought out was in your own life, uh, you've dealt with uh, what was diagnosed as clinical depression a couple of times, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, in doing that, was it an eye-opening experience for you uh, uh, when you dealt with that in terms of what the treatments that were recommended and how you eventually figured out how best to deal with it in your own life? Uh, it seems that that was part of what you were sharing in a book. I um I went through a personal tragedy in my life uh, towards my late twenties. And my mother was the type of person who, she grew up in a generation where if you ever suggested therapy to my mother, her response would be, I'm not crazy, right? Mm-hmm. That, it was, mm-hmm. you know, that was the world she came from. But she had a friend who uh, was a child psychologist named Buzz. So my mother comes into my room one day and she says, Buzz tells me that she thinks you're in trouble. And I looked up at her and I went, you think? Because basically all I did was cry for months. And um, she said, so Buzz said we should, you should see someone. We should send you to see someone. And I said, yeah, that would be nice because I knew I needed help. And my mother said, but I don't want any of this new age stuff that you do. I want a <laughs> doctor. I want a psychiatrist. And I said, uh, great. And she said, and I would like him to be Jewish. I said, fine, <laughs> fine. And she said, I will find someone. I will look for someone. And she sent me to see someone. And I went into his office. And I said, I need you to know that I'm a student of a set of books called A Course in Miracles. If you're mm-hmm. going to mock my spiritual path, if you are going to make fun, if you are going to say that's part of the problem, anything like that, I will walk out of this office. And he said, well, you don't need to walk out because I just completed the workbook. Wow. <laughs> now, this was in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. An MD psychiatrist in Houston who was doing, I mean, that how the universe, the, the, the brilliance of the universe, because what are the chances of that? Right. What are the chances of that? And I, I see that man as having saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I felt during that time as though my head exploded into, it was like a feeling like my, my skull was an ancient Greek vase that exploded into thousands and thousands of little tiny pieces. And slowly but surely it came back together. But I felt when it came back together, and I talk about this in the book, I do mention some specifics of the story about Jesus at the cocktail party and all of that. Mm-hmm. That when I, when I came out of that experience, Dennis and Phil, I felt 
something came into my head that had not been there before. And it was shortly after that that I that I started my career. Now, there was a time early in the process, where very early, where he had, given, had prescribed some medication. And I came back the next week and I tossed the, the little plastic bottle over to his desk and I said, uh, if I want to do drugs, I can come up with something better than this by myself. <laughs> and, he did, and, and, and I did not want to, you know, some people would say, yeah, but that was many years ago and the medication would be better. The point is, I, this was done with therapy and with God. And when I came back, you know, I became very interested in this topic, and I've read other stories. I'm not sure, but I think it was the actress Deborah Winger, I think that's who it was, who I read a story where she had been kicked in the head by a, a horse and was right. in a coma. And she came out of the coma and said, I, I'm going to be an actress, and had never wanted to be an actress before. So I've read fascinating stories about people who go through these dark nights of the soul, who go through these, these profound, what the world calls nervous breakdowns or deep traumas like, like hers, and come out, and that was their initiation. That was some mm -hmm. profound shift that actually led them on the path to a much brighter future than perhaps they would have experienced had they not. So my times of deep, sadness. Um, you know, not, not that you glorify sadness, and I don't glorify human suffering, and I don't in this book, uh, and neither is it to be minimized. You know, some people say I minimize mental illness. No, I don't, but neither should you pathologize normal suffering. And what I went through, um, what many of us go through, um, as painful as it can be at some times, is within the spectrum of normalcy. Mm -hmm. And um, I have learned that from experience. I've had my sad times, as other people have, but I also had um, one other time uh, that, you know, the details don't matter, but that was the big, 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 big black wave. Um, but these were situational. They did not come out of nowhere. Mm. Um, and the lessons that I learned there were um, treasures. Marion, one of the uh, concepts you introduce in Tears to Triumph is um, this notion that we have uh, a kind of psychological um, correlate to the immune system that yes. you call the psychic immune system. Could you, could you explain that? And well, I think it's a very important thing. When you think about it, we have developed over, what, hundreds of thousands of years that, that we know of, the human race. And we would not have developed um, as we have and survived were we not imbued with the capacity to take a hit. That is true not only physically, but also psychologically and emotionally. The immune system in the body uh, is necessary, obviously, a compromised immune system. People die because you do take hits. You take hits in terms of injury. You take hits in terms of disease. And the immune, immune system makes us able, to a large degree, to take those hits. Well, we, we were also imbued with the mechanisms uh, by which we can take a hit emotionally, psychologically. As I mentioned earlier, heartbreak didn't just start. Catastrophe, catastrophic situations didn't just begin recently. Um, one of the things I'm also concerned about is how um, you see all these young girls today who years before they're even sexually active are being given birth control pills the parents being told they need them to quote-unquote regulate their hormones. And mm -hmm. so nature hasn't been regulating women's hormones for hundreds of thousands of years. So, so psychically, it's true as well. This is mm -hmm. what grief is. 
You know, grief is one of the ways that your psyche integrates an experience, which is, it's, it's kind of like chewing. If you had to take it all in all at once, the shock could be too great to the system. Grief is a way you move through a process of integrating an experience. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, the psyche, why is it that we are so convinced of the natural genius of the body, but less convinced of the natural genius of the mind? Mm-hmm. We know it's genius in terms of processing information and so forth, but, but why do we underestimate the genius of the mind in healing itself when it too has, has taken a hit. Right, Marietta, I loved in the book, uh, in des- describing what you're talking about now, uh, about processing suffering, processing hard times in our mm-hmm. life, uh, you, you, you quote uh, Simon and Garfunkel's song, Hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again. Darkness entering your light, life, and then, you know, d- dealing with it. This, you know, it, it's a... It, uh, the beautiful lyrics, and, and it brings out the, the, the point exactly that you're making, that uh, you, you have to learn, and kids have to learn how to deal with stuff and, and process and go through it, not just numb themselves by, by taking a drug, or, or, or it can happen with alcohol, drugs, uh, illegal drugs as well, but actually being able to work through these things. Well, you know, it's interesting what you're talking about with drugs, because I have to tell you something. As my, You have the FDA saying that for people 25 and younger, the risk of suicidal ideation is higher. I have to say something with all due respect. I've never heard of anybody killing themselves on marijuana. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and also, also what you were saying in terms of, of our children. I remember when my daughter was in high school, junior high school, high school. You know, when they're little, there's so much you can control. And then life starts to happen, and there are sadnesses, there are situations at school, situations with friends that you as a parent cannot protect them from and shouldn't try to protect them from. But you are so happy that they're going through that while, you're still in, while they're still in your home mm-hmm. and while you can still teach them the, the navigational tools, emotional navigational tools. That's why it's so dangerous these days. Parents who keep trying to protect their children from every possible uh, pain, including their own failures that they should in fact be taking responsibility for. And if, if, if children do not develop those skills, then ad- adulthood is going to be very, very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dennis, you're, you're well aware because you were so wonderful to me at the time. I ran for Congress a couple of years ago. And a few days after the election, uh, Maria Shriver was interviewing me. And she said in the interview, are you sad? And I responded, no. And she said, really? You're not just a little bit sad? And I said, no, I'm not really sad. You know, you you don't go into an experience like this knowing you're going to win. Somebody's going to lose. Somebody's going to win. So, you know, I'm I'm not sad. And she said, well, you know, I had a cousin who ran for Congress and lost, and he was really depressed. I said, no, that's, that's not the emotion I'm in. Well, about two days later, two or three days later, I was sitting in my apartment in Los Angeles, and I remember the moment I saw a black wave coming at me, um, and it was definitely a hello darkness, my old friend um, Hmm. moment, and I knew what was coming, and I had clearly just been in shock for a few days, and man, I saw it coming. Um, What followed that was three months where... um, don't even think about sleeping at night. 
uh, don't think about eating much and expect this to be a really rough time. At exactly three months after that, I remember the day I had the thought, a file that you might call a mental file called Life Will Go On. And then three months after that, it still took another six months where I was bruised, but I, I, um, uh, I, after a year, it was, you know, it's fascinating to me about timing. You know, women know this from our menstrual periods. If you've ever had a colicky baby, how fascinating it is, how the colicky baby will start screaming at exactly 3.58 every afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I experienced that with that period of depression. Uh, or like a 12-hour virus, you know, sometimes you have a 12-hour right. or 24-hour virus. I felt that there was, a, a, there was one phase that was exactly three months, another phase that was exactly three months, and then an, an exactly six months. And then I was done. Um, I, you know, I had that experience, and it was like with the Simon and Garfunkel. I knew it was coming, and you know, you just hunker down. And that's why it's important to know that this is a phenomenon. It's called spiritually the dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be fun. You're going to have to look at things not fun to look at. Um, in that case, for instance, you know, a sense of failure, public humiliation, uh, a lot of forgiveness of myself, forgiveness of others. Um, how could you not be sad? It's give, I tell you, Dennis, I, I know with your, all your political interests, I have such compassion for political candidates now. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, I, I I don't care what party or what I have I have a compassion I would never have had before. They really put so yeah, if if you go through this and you know you survive, um, among other things, suffering gives you X-ray vision into the suffering of others. Marianne, in, in tears to triumph, you you have a lot of good advice for people going through suffering. Um, forgiveness gets a, an entire chapter. It must uh, loom very important in in your framework. Uh, Can you talk about uh, forgiveness and why it's so important in this context? The way the mind operates, whatever I accord reality will have a quote-unquote real effect on me. This is, you know, this is why spirituality is not a less sophisticated. It is a more sophisticated mental lens because it, is in alignment with how consciousness actually operates. What I focus on will be more real for me. If I am focused on what you did to me, the effect of what you did to me will be greater. If I am able to evolve beyond my obsession with what you did to me, if I'm able to see past what you did to me, what you did to me, that focus on your guilt, that focus on what you did, that is the only way to free myself from the, the, the experience of that, that perpetration. So the Course in Miracles, for instance, says that the universe is programmed. It's like a GPS. If I take a wrong turn, the, the GPS automatically recalibrates. So whatever you did to me, the universe has already reprogrammed things so that I will be compensated for that. I wrote a book called The Law of Divine Compensation. Let's say somebody, this is an example of one that's happened in my life. Um, I had a, um, I've had a lot of this. I think a lot of women who become uh, <laughs> successful all in the world go through this one. This is a phenomenon. Um, 
a lot of times you find that the men in suits that are the ones you trusted to take care of you are the ones who steal a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so whether it was my agent who uh, stole the, the royalties for my first three books or a fancy lawyer who threw me under the bus with a publisher costing me a lot of money. Um, the, the Course in Miracles and other metaphysical material like that would indicate that as soon as those things happened, the opportunities for that money to come back were created. But, and because that's what a miracle is. A miracle is a shift in perception that causes a shift in, in circumstances. But my anger and my bitterness at the lawyer, my anger and my bitterness at the agent blocks the miraculous unfoldment of the universe. That's how consciousness operates. So you can, you can witness what happened. You can hold them accountable for what happened. Believe me, in the first one I did, and the second one I wish I'd figured it out before the statute of limitations was over. It's not like you don't hold someone accountable mm-hmm. if, if that is appropriate action. It's that you do not remain psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually stuck in that place. That's why justice is, is a positive. You know, that's why justice is a positive. It's, it's an aspect of the face of God. And then what happens is that you are free to go forward in your life. You know, if I had just become angry and bitter and stayed stuck there, I wouldn't have been able to move on and go into other professional situations that hopefully could help me make back that money that was taken. Mm-hmm. Marianne, you say in your book that uh, some of the most depressed people in the world are from the richest nations. Well, why do you think that is? Because sometimes, not all the time, you know, I'm not saying that, that, I'm not saying that money causes this. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that, in, you know, it's like when Mother Teresa said, uh, she came here and she said, uh, you are the poorest of nations. She said, I come from a country where people, starving people will share their banana mm-hmm. with another, starving person will share their one banana with another starving person. In your country, she said, people have so many bananas and they don't even share them. Mm-hmm. Um, as Buddha said, happiness, the things of this world provide only temporary happiness at best. And some of the richest nations of the world, including ours, have joined in a cultural agreement that happiness is due to getting the right job or making the right things happen. And then this, the actual um, effort to do that under the, uh, under the false belief that that's what will bring me happiness is actually set up for despair. Mm-hmm. Because even if I get that, if I don't know how to love, if I don't know how to be loved, if I don't know how to build community, if I don't know how to build human relationships, then I might be sitting in a big house with a lot of money in the bank, but I'm lonely and I'm, and I'm, I'm depressed because only love, um, only love actually provides happiness at that fundamental level. And that, that's what real mental health is, the capacity to build human relationships. Because Marianne, that's what God the, is. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No, please repeat what you said because I talked over you. Yeah, no, I, I was just saying that's where God is. You know, in Les Miserables, there's a lyric to love another for person is to see the face of God. We are spiritually bereft uh, on our planet. And in societies like ours, often people are the most spiritually bereft because the soul, the spirit is here for us to love one another. That is the highest law, that we love one another. And when we follow that law is when we're happy. Mary, what, what is... What's the role of community in, in all this? Uh, one of the 
features of our kind of society is the sort of displacement of people and the mobility of people and uh, a lot of people complaining about the loss of community. Where does community fit into uh, moving from tears to triumph? I think it begins with, well, first of all, there's the individual level, but there's the, the collective level. I'll start on the individual level. One of the things I talk about in the book is that our model around suffering, first of all, is too much focused on the individual, and that has a lot of repercussions that I talk about in the book. Hmm. But one of the problems with focusing too much on the individual when you're suffering is that you are supported in a very unhealthy tendency when we're in pain, and that is to isolate. Because it is in joining with other people that we heal. So building community means reaching across the wall that separates you attitudinally, psychologically, and emotionally from other people. So that's number one. And building that community might be as simple as one or two people that you actually extend yourself to, particularly those who might be suffering as much as you or certainly going through their own experiences in life. In terms of the society, it starts with an, a deeper appreciation of the family. You know, we talk about family values, but how often do we just give that lip service? Now, sometimes the, the family community, that is the, the primal community. It begins with family. That, that in, in a healthy society, you know that your family has your back. Unfortunately, in too many families, uh, your family does not have your back. In fact, the biggest psychic you know, wounds you get are from family members. But when things are working well, you know that this is a group of people who have your back. Mm -hmm. You know, I um, in my own life when my mother died, uh, my two first cousins, Martha and Kathy, uh, when they came to take my mother's body away and her coffin was, um, actually wasn't in a coffin yet, she was on a, um, what do they call it, gurney. gurney. Mm -hmm. They were taking her down to the ambulance to take her to the funeral home. And I, the, the elevator came up, and I went to the elevator, and Martha and Kathy ju jumped into the elevator with me. And in that moment, I was very aware that I had a number of friends who, and either one of you would have done this, anybody who loves you, anyone with any sense of goodwill, would not have let me take that elevator ride myself. They would have ridden with me. But there was something so profound about the fact that it was my blood relative. It was mm -hmm. so profound that it was women who themselves, their, their fathers were both brothers to my mother. So it is very sad how, how little attention we give in our societies at this point uh, to the cultivation of deep family connection. But also sometimes your deep, your blood family is not your tribe. But I think more and more people are coming to understand the need to build community and to build, to find your, your, the members of your tribe, to build a relationship, even if it's not your biological family. Mm. And I think more and more people are, are recognizing this. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to paint a picture only of what's wrong. And the book doesn't paint a picture only of what's wrong. You, you, but the spirituality does not just proclaim the light. You can't really proclaim the light without pointing out where the darkness lies. Mm -hmm. And um, so that lack of community does contribute to the isolation and the loneliness that is so contrary to who we are mm -hmm. because we are created by God as one. That's the metaphysical meaning. Mm -hmm. There is only one begotten son. We're all it. So we can't be happy when we are separate from each other. The, separate, the, the false sense of separation from each other is the source of our unhappiness and the, reconnect, the reconnection 
um, with other people is the source of our happiness, and there is no getting away from that. Right. Marianne, that, that is such a great point. It hits me. I think I mentioned to you once I grew up on a block, and within a few houses, uh, I had 17 cousins, all living on the same side of the block, and, and I, I miss that very much, and, and wherever I go, I, I try to create some sense of family. But, um, uh, Marianne, thank you so very much for your time. Any final points you'd like to, to make to our listeners today? Really, just to thank you. Um, I, it's um, I. I feel that you know the bad news in America. Even though individually we are, I like Americans, but collectively we have a capacity for grandiosity and denial that's pretty off the charts. I think mm-hmm. we all know this. But the good news about America is how things can and do change when when there's a buzz about something, when there's a new conversation. And I'm grateful to you. Um, for uh, allowing me this opportunity to to hold this conversation um, and to join with me in in this inquiry because um, I do think it's so needed and I know that if enough of us start having these conversations um, then it it will will make a difference. Um, I have confidence in that so I thank you for the opportunity uh, to go there in this conversation. Well, thank you, Marianne. And we should let our readers know uh, Again, that the, the title of the book is Tears to Triumph, subtitled Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment, and it's available at the usual places, and they can find out more about Marianne and the book at marianne.com. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And again, the book, Tears to Triumph. Uh, thank you so much, Marianne.